The Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Good morning and welcome to the latest Go Radio Business Show with Sir Tom Hunter and Lord Willie Hockey. I'm Donald Martin, editor of The Herald and Herald on Sunday, and your host as we discuss this week's business headlines, hear inspirational success stories, and get brilliant advice from the board you can't afford. We're also joined this morning by special guest Paul Cooney, Chief Executive of the Kilt Walk. And of course, Tom and Willie are here to provide support for local business. If you want advice or have a question for our dynamic duo, please email gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the Twitter conversation at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. So gentlemen, lots of interesting topics again, including the Tory party conference, pressures on the NHS this winter, and the takeover of Morrison's. So let's kick off with our supermarket giants. A £9 billion win for private equity giant Clayton, Dubilier and Rice. Great value or not, Tom? Well, I mean, Willie would know more about it, but um, I would say when you compare it to the way um, TDR and the ISA brothers bought Asda, it looks a bit of a bargain for me. And it's quite interesting how these things come around because CDR, the private equity firm that's bought um, Morrison's, one of their advisors is Terry Leahy, former CEO of Tesco, and now he's going to go back as chairman of Morrison's, displacing his former CFO at Tesco, Andy Higginson. So the chairs are all moving and the music's still playing. So I think it's not the end of the supermarket sweep. Willie? Yeah, I think there's another add-on to that story as well, Tom. I believe that, that Sir Terry worked in Morrison's as a young man. So I think he worked with Ken, if I read the, the report right in the papers. So yeah, so there's... Um, I, I think the point that Tom made uh, when you see that this is a £9 billion deal, obviously, you know, it's been released this week that there's £2 billion of debt included as well. Then I think Tom is right. The, the, the deal with TDR for Asda looks like a bargain. No, look bad. But it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. Well, their bids of uh, 287 pence a share triumphed by just a penny. That must be hard to take for the rival bidder's fortress investment, Tom. Yeah, well, it, it takes me back, um, Donald, to 2003 when we were bidding for Selfridges and um, we got down to a sealed bid and we were against Galen West and, and I knew he was the man that would beat me because he'd get far more money than me. And um, But it did go to sealed bids. Now, I what actually happened was when they opened the sealed bids, Galen and his team had said, I bid one pence a share more than Tom Hunter. <laughs> oh, well, uh, hopefully this isn't opening an old wound. Sorry, I, sh- I should do my research. <laughs> shouldn't I, no, I don't normally look back at deals and have any regrets. The only deal I regret never getting was Selfridges because it was iconic. It was You were buying an island site in Oxford Street. You were buying the property. There was a hotel on the roof, believe it or not, and we were going to do some apartments up in the roof in Oxford Street but maybe now that Oxford Street's so quiet maybe it, it was a good miss but certainly when we opened up the envelopes 
Um, I knew we'd been outfoxed by Galen and his team. My team were completely incandescent, but I said, they've been better than us. I had built up a stake in Selfridges, so I phoned Galen and I said, well done, you're a bit sharper than us. And I sold him my shares and we shook hands. And um, Galen passed away just this year, so he was a gentleman, actually. So I need, I need to give you a wee insight into my only dealings ever with Selfridges. When I first set up the company, I had this great idea that I was going to steal the, their amazing brand. So when I first started up, I called the company Selfridges. <laughs> <laughs> and they sent me a letter saying they were going to sue me. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. No, that wasn't a true story. <laughs> oh, no. okay. Well, ho- hopefully you've never lost out by a penny and uh, we're going for a deal, Willie. Um, no, I, not that I know of. Um, I, I, to be fair, I've, I've not never tried to buy a company that was public. Um, but it's interesting that it was actually the you know, the, the commission that's set up this way of deciding who was going to buy. And it, it's, it's interesting to see they've done it by e-auction, which was probably done away with about 10 years ago. So the government's got a wee bit of catching up today as to how to get the best price for selling something. So do you think this takeover will be good or bad for customers, Tom? Well, I mean, the thing about the UK grocery market is it's pretty competitive. I mean, Willie will... will will know more with his contacts at Asda and I think, Willie, you, you're doing Marks and Spencers and a whole bunch of them now. So it's all about the competition. Now, people get worried when they see private equity coming in because Morrisons own a lot of their stores, they own a lot of their manufacturing and um, people were worried they're going to sell off distribution centres, etc. And In the terms of the contract, they've committed to not doing that for 12 months. (laughs) So let's have a look back because everybody promises the earth for 12 months. Let's, Let's have a wee look back in 12 months and see. But is it good for competition? Yeah, everybody's, so the private equity people have got to make a return for their shareholders. Um, but I think you're going to see things happening at Sainsbury's. There's a big announcement from Tesco this week. Tesco's maybe a bit big, but then again, there's so much dry powder, as they call it, in private equity. That's money the private equity funds have raised from their investors sitting. And the private equity boys only make money if they deploy that capital. So is Tesco too big? I don't know. Why are UK businesses so attractive to investors right now? So I would I would say, Donald, that um, there's a number of businesses that are on the UK stock market where the chief executives of these businesses are saying the UK stock market are not valuing my business properly. Um, so Morrison's would be a, a prime example of that. There were shareholders in um, Morrison's for many years, but the market did not value their paper properly. Private equity came along and said, I'm going to pay more for that business than the UK stock market values it at. And that, that is what's happening with a whole bunch of companies now on the public markets. There is so much dry powder, as I say, in private equity funds. I mean, that's that's been the biggest thing that's happened in financial markets since the financial crash of 2008. This unregulated sector of the market um, 
taken over from the banks, raising so much money. So people like Blackstone and KKR and Apollo, TDR, CDR, names probably not many people have heard of. Now, some of them are really good in their businesses. And I take Willie's point about private equity coming in and trying to change the business. But the clever private equity, and believe you me, these boys are clever, um, understand the business. They've put Terry Leahy in there, Stuart Rose in Asda. They absolutely understand what they're doing. So I think we're going to see a lot more companies coming off the UK stock market. Really? Yeah, it's interesting. Just this week now, a lot of great stuff come out about Mars and Spencers, and I see that they're a recommendation by some of the big stock pickers as a buy. So there's certainly a lot happening in the, in the grocery retail market. Obviously, um, it's not been affected by COVID, but suddenly now we're getting, it's been affected by the effects of COVID. You know, the lack of lorry drivers, the shelves are empty. So I think it's it's the one sector over the past 18 months where there, w- there was not much change in relation to turnover in, in the business, but it's unfortunate they've been affected now and we're seeing that. But I think Tom is right, there is so much dry powder going about at the moment and here is a sector because most most of the big retailers as Tom says were all heavily asset backed so in fact the last time Tom there was stories about buying um, Morrison's been up for sale you could have actually bought Morrison's for less than the property value yeah that was that that was the calculations the private equity guys sat and did they probably couldn't believe their luck now they got into a competitive bid, so they ended up paying probably a bit more than they wanted to, but they still went ahead. So let's see what they do with these property assets, Willie, yes. in 12 months. <laughs> yes. Last, last week, we talked about the Labour Party conference and it gave Willie a chance to big up his party. This week, of course, we've got the Tory Party conference and your man Sunak is staying mum on future tax rises, saying debt comes first. But there are hints he's building maybe a wee war chest for election time cuts. Is this the right business strategy or the right political strategy, Tom? Well, first of all, I just want to make it clear, Willie is Labour, I'm not a Tory. <laughs> but you do like Sunak. I do like Sunak. Um, you know, I've said it many times, I... I've got a low expectation from politicians and I'm never disappointed. Um, So I like Sunak because he's been in the real world and I think he gets it. I don't think Boris Johnson gets it. Some of the stuff he's been coming out with, oh my God, unbelievable. But um, listen, 70 billion was what was paid for the furlough scheme. Now, I, I... I say it almost every week. Governments don't have money. They only get money from us, the taxpayers, and decide how to spend it, or they borrow money. But at the end of the day, it's us, the taxpayers, who have got to pay for these things. Hence, the national insurance increase, etc., etc. So he's he's got to get his his borrowing back into line, and then he's got some huge asks from him. The health service, my goodness, they need so much money. It's not just money they need, but they've got so much money that they need to do with the care system to get back on top. I mean, the waiting lists are unbelievable. So 
there's a long list of people going to the Chancellor's door saying, please, sir, can I have some more? And the only people who pay for it is you and me. Well, Willie, here's your chance, I said. <laughs> is uh, the Conservative Party's what you've heard good for business? They make all the right noises. Um, I've yet to see the, the proof. Um, I think, you know, this, uh, we want a, a high-salaried, great, uh, you know, economy, high-paid jobs. Where is it? Where's the substance? These are just sound bites. And this is the usual, you know, Boris, you know, just say anything and people will believe it. You know, we're st- still waiting for the 350 million a week for the NHS. Trust me, they're going to need it. Um, I think the, the Chancellor has a huge challenge ahead of him and there's no way that they can get through this without raising taxes. So this conference has came too quick for, as we see, maybe at the end of the, the, the later end of the tunnel for COVID. I think the next Tory conference next time round, you'll see all the shocks. And so you're getting all the good news just now because people couldn't handle any bad news at the moment. But... You know, when you see this week, Tom, we've been talking about it for weeks and weeks, inflation. Suddenly the dreaded word appears this week, stagflation. So, you know, and some experts, I was watching the guys from BlackRock and uh, other big institutions that are, you know, have got billions in, in the economy saying that, you know, that the, the way that, uh, well, Tom, or bet it looks like they're saying that I might be right about where inflation may go, uh, but that's yet to be seen. But I think, see, at the moment... There is no one who understands anything about numbers would want to be running the country or a local authority. No one but no one is going to have enough money. Good to see we're still being controversial. Tom, can I add, I don't know if you've seen it today, that on the 18th of October this year, they are saying that America, for the first time in their history, will reach the ceiling for the sovereign debt. Wow. Um, I didn't see that, really, but I think my jacket's in a sugarly peg, as they say about bet. I might be buying Christmas lunch, but <laughs> it's not over. It's not over yet, Willie. Yep. Well, to- Tom, you, you said earlier there that Boris just talks nonsense, but surely Boris's pledge of a high-wage, high-skill employment economy is the right way forward. Yeah, but... That's not in Boris's gift. That's in the gift of entrepreneurs, of business people who see the opportunities, set up their business and go for it. You know, the number one thing, and and we've talked about it in this show many times, the number one thing for a growing business that sets it apart is the attraction, retention of talent. Now, I used to think about that in terms of the best talent of engineers for a software business or computer programmers, coders like Chris talked about last week. But now we are seeing the talent being lorry drivers. Now we're seeing the talent being nurses. So I think that's a good thing, but Boris has got nothing to do with it. Come on, can businesses actually afford to pay higher wages? You're saying it's a good thing. Not without putting up prices. Right, Tom's right. You know, at the end of the day here... You know, if if people are going to get paid more, which maybe we believe they should do, then as long as we know that if the consumer will pay, it's the only way that you can run a successful business. Yeah, I mean, I I totally agree. I mean, I think I I believe in this about paying people more for the jobs that you know the 
the COVID pandemic has made us all think about what's important and who's important. And we've all we've all thought about it in our own lives and businesses have thought about it as well. Everybody's had time to reflect and went, right, this is going to be different. And I think that's a good thing. I really do. But at the end of the day, productivity needs to go up to pay the wages. And the only people who pay for the extra wages is the consumer. That's the bottom line. Well, the consumer and business may have to deal with stagflation. I mean, quite a few warnings, and Willie just touched on it a wee bit earlier. Tom, what is it and what does it mean for the economy and the consumer? Uh, well, I'm going to let Willie explain stagflation because um, I have to, I maybe read the economics at university. I think I was off that week. Yeah. Stagflation is when inflation rises and salaries don't. Okay. So the gap between what you get to survive and what you have is it gets less and less. So that is a dangerous situation. That affects everyone. This is when people stop spending. You stop going to cinema, you stop going to restaurants, you stop buying goods. So this is when people panic, you know, mortgages, people don't, you know. It would affect, stagflation affects everything. House prices will go down. Everything that happens, that what we call in a, in a boom, it goes the opposite way. And also, I think the reason why, you know, some of the, the bigger players in, 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 the, in trading are making the point this week is because it also has a major effect on the stock market. Are you worried about it, Tom? Yeah, I'm worried about it. Um, We talked about him last week, Peter Cummings, who's my chairman. So he worries about stagflation um, for sure. So if he's worried and Willie's worried, then I'm worried. Okay, another thing that's worrying us is the NHS potential winter crisis. Obviously, there's been more money pledged up here in in Scotland um, to help with the impending impact on our services, either from COVID or an increase in people getting the flu. From a business point of view, Willie, can we cope with high levels of sickness and absence? And are we going to get through this NHS crisis? I have to be honest and say, I do think there is going to be a crisis during the winter. Uh, I think that the NHS is, is going to be overrun. Um, and, I, and I think that it will be hard and it will have an effect on business. I believe, you know, some of the stories you're hearing at the moment that people, you know, um, I had a story last night about a gentleman who's had to finally, he's had a frozen shoulder for months and months, could not get seen, he had to take his life savings and go to Ross Hall and get it done privately, he couldn't take the pain anymore. So that's just one example, one story. I think this is more and more prevalent over, over the winter and unfortunately it is going to have an effect on business. So, Tom, are we solving the NHS crisis or are we just putting a sticking plaster on it? Yeah, well, it seems to me it is a sticking plaster. Um, I mean, this, I, I remember going to China maybe about eight years ago and sitting with a bunch of really academics, top of their game, all American educated, but went back home to China to teach and sitting around the table or chatting about various things and somebody brought up the NHS and somebody said, well, you know it's going to bankrupt the UK. And I went, what, what are you talking about? We're very proud of the NHS. It's, one of, it's a brilliant thing. And they said, yeah, but you can't afford it. And I, I went away saying, oh, they're wrong. But now I'm beginning to think, goodness, how do we afford it? Our demographics are going the wrong way. So we've got an age 
population. People are living longer because of the science. People, you know, scientists are coming up with new ways to elongate our lives. But that all puts pressure on the NHS. We've then had the pandemic, which has totally, oh my goodness, I can't imagine working in the NHS just now. People must be really tired. And then we're moving into a winter where they're saying there's going to be flu. So I would I would encourage people of a certain age. I've I've never had a flu jab, but I'm getting one this year, that's for sure. So money alone will not solve how we manage the NHS. And I'm going to be controversial for a second here because the NHS is, is held up by everybody as this sacrosanct thing. And we're very proud of it. But if we had a 20-year plan for the NHS, there would be a private element of it. Now, I know no politician, not even a Tory politician, would say that, but it's the only way. I mean, our NHS just now is the third biggest employer in the world. So therefore, if you just throw money at this, you know, throwing money at it has never just been the answer. It's the management, it's the layers of management, it's putting the patient first here and putting everything into it so the patient is everything the NHS does. And private is going to be part of the answer. It's not going to be the whole answer. And until some politicians are honest with the public, we should have a 20-year plan which takes it out of politics. Politicians will come and go in five-year terms. We should have a 20-year plan for our NHS. So, Willie, private's part of the answer on a 20-year plan? Well, I would just say, firstly, Tom's first point is absolutely spot on. The Republicans in America fought the Obamacare bill, but when, when everyone, when the Democrats put up the NHS in the UK as this beacon of hope, that what they said was it was not sustainable and it will be bursting bankrupt within the next 10, 15 years. That was their whole argument, and they kept that going for two years. But I, want, I, I think Tom makes an interesting point here. I was all, I've always been a, bemused by people who have a go at people who send their kids to private school and who have private medicine, right? So I'm not ashamed to say that I'm in Bupa and I will go for a private medical. But I'd like to point out to these people, I still pay my NI contribution, right? So I'm still paying everything that everybody else is paying. But what I'm doing is, I believe I'm freeing up a gap where someone else can get a bed in the, in the NHS hospital. So... I've never ever understood that why people try to point the, the finger at people who use private healthcare. Um, I think there is absolutely a place for the NHS. I think what we need to do is we need to look at it. I think there's a lot of money wasted in bureaucracy. I think I made the point a few weeks ago when we were talking about something else that it's too big. It has to be broken up. Right, but but still, the biggest majority of that should be certainly stay as a, as a public service. But there's definitely a position for private healthcare for people who can afford that. One of the things that helps our health sometimes is sunshine. Do you think the simplification of the rules for getting away on coming back from a foreign trip are enough of a difference to help the airlines in the foreign holiday business? Well, I've seen Willie Wall saying it was great, so if he's saying it's great, it must be fantastic. <laughs> must be. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that is great. The confusion, and more importantly, the cost. 
people, you know, might save up and, and can just afford to go away. They've got their budget for their spending money and suddenly then on top of that they may have £400 or £500 for testings now that they don't need. So I definitely think, but, but it's interesting, after 18 months of nothing, you know, the airports crying out for people to come. What happens this week when people come? All the e-gates break down. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously maintenance has not been continued for the past 18 months you need to have a word Willie four, so, four, uh, four hour waits Tom at Heathrow yesterday oh my god four hour waits that would put you off yeah they've certainly still got their challenges coming up after the break we'll be talking to the chief executive of Kiltwalk Paul Cooney don't forget if you want to be part of the board you can't afford you can put your questions to Tom and Willie by emailing gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. This is the Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. By business for business. Welcome back as we are joined by Paul Cooney, the Chief Executive of Kiltwalk. But first, the latest in our great series on Great Scots, features tenants. The origin of the Tenants Family Association with Brewing dates back to 1556, when Robert Tennant, who believed this place is perfect for brewing beer, established the brewery in Glasgow. The Tennant family continued their tradition of brewing for generations. However, brewing on a commercial basis only started in 1740, when the two Tennant brothers, Hugh and Robert, established the H&R Tennant Partnership, becoming the sixth generation of the Tennant family to be involved in brewing. In 1745, Bonnie Prince Charlie and his army lodged in the brewery following their retreat from England. In the Glasgow City Hall records, it's written that every man was refreshed and heartened by the Tennant's brothers' delicious brew. It was under John and Robert's stewardship in the 18th century that the first recorded export of Tennant's to America took place. They sent consignments of ale, which were high in strength in order to withstand the long voyage, to expatriate Scots in 1797. In 1860, under the control of Hugh Tennant Sr., the firm became the world's largest exporter of beer in less than a century, a triumph by anyone's standards. Following their growing success, the iconic Red Tea logo was registered as a trademark across the British Empire in 1867. It would go on to become the symbol of home to every Scottish person that sees it. In the 1880s, during a trip in Bavaria, Hugh Tennant developed a passion for a lighter, sparkling beer that he discovered while visiting, referred to as German beer or lager. He wasted little time with the first bottles of Tennant's lager rolling off the production line in 1885. The local press dubbed the success of the lager as a madman's dream, as it contrasted the darker, heavier ales that Scotland was accustomed to. The first draft lager in the world, the first can of lager, and the first pilsner to be created in the UK. Hugh would prove to be a true innovator of his time. Today, Tennant's Lager is Scotland's best-selling pale lager, with approximately 60% of the Scottish lager market. Hugh Tennant passed away unmarried and childless, aged just 27. What he lacked in personal relationships, however, he more than made up for in both innovation and a lasting contribution to Scottish culture. Great Scots on the Go Radio Business Show. So, Willie, Tennants has been part of your success story. God bless them. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'd be sitting here today if it wasn't for Tennants. When we first started the way back in 1985, um, Tennants became our largest customer. In fact, I think over the first nine years of our existence, 
um, they, they grew to about 90% of my turnover. But what a customer, people to deal with, unbelievable. It's the only customer I've ever had that used to phone you towards the end of the month and say, do we owe you any money? <laughs> and they would tell, you know, they'd tell people, you know, they say, you know, come and pick up a cheque. And so we grew the whole business on, on, on the back of, of that. And, and Tom, you'll love this for a marketing story, right? So I was always impressed with tenants in Scotland and thought it was great. They only had a stranglehold. And, and years later, after dealing with tenants for many years, I got the opportunity to become the supplier of technical trades for Budweiser in Scotland. And at this time, Budweiser were dominating the planet. And uh, I'll, I'll never forget it, Tom. I went to this sales conference and all the top guys from America were there. And they had all their salespeople from the UK and they were going to have this big splash to try and sell Budweiser draft, their lager and draft taps. And uh, they had about 300 sales guys there. I'll never forget it. And they brought in the top guy, the top guy from America. And they brought a map of the world up, right? And he said that we don't use this word often, but here, 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 we've got saturation, right? But here's where we want you guys in the UK to really focus on. Here's the areas we want to get into. And they were showing you all across the UK. And you had this dot in the middle, right, which was Scotland and more the west of Scotland. And he says, but we're going to tell you is, do not waste your time in trying to sell in here because there's a phenomena here called tenants lagger. This is from the top guys with Budweiser. So for me, I had a big, big kick out of that. But um, yeah, tenants for me, and I think I, I may have mentioned that a few weeks ago, but um, we were so fortunate we got a bit of luck. You know, we're first year in business. We're trying to grow the business. And one Sunday afternoon, it was first Sunday, 1986, I get a call from the Videodrome Bar in York Street. And the reason why I get a call there is that they had got the largest loan ever from tenants. I think way back then, it was like uh, oh, £600,000 and their cellar refrigeration system broke down. And I went in and helped them. I couldn't get the thing repaired, but I showed them that if they had a big ice maker there, I, kept, I took ice for 10 hours and I kept putting it into this thing called the Python that kept the beer cold. Saved the day, they had like 800 people in the pub. Everyone was great. Next day, I went back to meet the, the head of tenants. The, the gentleman there, Neville Link, said he would set up a meeting and the following Monday after the World Cup final 1986, I started my relationship with tenants and as I say, it's the whole foundation for what City is today globally. It's a brilliant story and a great company, Tom, isn't it, Tenants? Oh, I mean, I, I love that story, Willie. That is, uh, that is a real entrepreneur in there, scythering the python. That's it. <laughs> now we're joined by Paul Cooney, the Chief Executive of Kiltwalk. If you want business advice or have a question for Tom and Willie, you can email us at gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. Paul, welcome to the show. Welcome, Donald. I thought you were going to say, if you want business advice, don't phone Paul Cooney. <laughs> <laughs> What's your oh. point, caller? Oh, started point already. Well, we know you're no stranger to the airways and you are a fantastic host of this station's football show. But much as I'd love to talk to you about Scotland's game against Israel last night and the old firm, we're here to talk about Kilt Walk and your involvement, so... 
Tell us about that journey and how it all kicked off. So I helped to launch Capital Radio in Scotland for Global. And then they were merging with uh, Real Radio and the Competition Commission stepped in and said, no, you, you can't have Capital and Heart, which is what it became. And so I exited at that time. I did a couple of things, Donald, but I was kind of, I just didn't know what to do. I was kind of lost because for years I'd worked in radio. And for the first time I was kind of kicking my feet. I just didn't know what to do. So... Then I was asked, do you fancy, by, by uh, Ewan Hunter, chair of the Kilt Walk. And I met him for a cup of coffee and uh, it took about five minutes. And I said, yeah, let's, let's give it a go. And that was, that was six years ago. Well, it was certainly a brilliant idea. But for those that don't know about Kilt Walk, what's it all about? Okay, so it started off from the Tartan Army. And when they were going around losing all over the world, the great thing is... The punters themselves, the men and women with the kilts on, were doing things for local areas. They were helping in different parts of the world and raising for local charities. And that's how it started. It was a great idea. And then they started doing walks all over Scotland. They did them in Brazil. They did them in China. But it costs money, as we all know, in the third sector. It costs money to raise money. And the model grew too quickly. And they were finding it difficult to say, look, if your charity raises you know, £50,000, you'll get the 50000 There were costs coming off that and it attracted bad publicity. It was good people with a great idea, but it was really struggling. And you know what it's like when it goes against you in publicity and trust is everything. And they turned to the Hunter Foundation. They said, let's ask Sir Tom Hunter, will he help? And I think Ewan and Lynn Henry from the Hunter Foundation went in, and that's probably Tom's side of it, but they went in and looked at it, met the staff. They had to make a lot of changes. This was in the spring of 2015. Uh, and by the summertime, um, I got the I got the call to join over a cup of coffee. It was an utterly brilliant idea in the concert, and people loved taking part. But what was the biggest challenge, I suppose, from you taking over there to make it all work? L- let's be quite clear. Uh, Tom um, and the Ewan and the trustees met the charities and said, right, we'll sort this out. The trust in the Hunter Foundation is massive. Uh, quite rightly, and that was the biggest thing for it. But we could, I could have made a mess of it, that's true, with the team, but we had really professional people. But when I arrived in August uh, 2015, there were two people, Stuart and Nella, were the surviving people from the old kilt walk, and uh, Stuart was the logistics, and, and uh, Nella. So we didn't, we didn't know how to put it on, so we'd keep people there. But trust was the biggest thing. And Tom, um, we went out to, to the public in November at Hamden Park. We said we would start from there, which is where it always started. And Tom met the media, did one-to-one interviews and said, every penny raised is going to go to the children's charities. It was for children's charities uh, previously. And who doesn't want to help children's charities? And that's what it was in the first year. And we had 7,400 people who walked, 4,001 of them in Glasgow in April 2016. So, so Paul, tell us now, that's what you inherited, a couple of people. What does, what does the, the, the staffing look like? What does the business look like now? So full-time equivalent, we've got nine people wow. running the kilt walk. We've got 12 in total, but there's, there's some part-time working which um, suits the staff. Um, it's quite a young uh, staff. Um, we've got the events people who actually put it on. Um, we've got the charity people, Stuart and Joe. I won't name everyone, yeah. but, you know, and they, we deal, we all deal. We do a bit of everything. Um, we've got finance. There's two people in finance because it's really important. The amount of money going through in the first year, it was almost 800,000. But a small, tight team, uh, social media is huge for us, the, the small media department. And um, it, it's a great team. 
and it is down to the team. But the leadership from the top with Tom, I can't stress enough that you know the difference that made. Yeah, Tom, you know, a lot of credit. That what made you step in and say every penny that is raised will go, to, you know, that you fundraise will go to you. Yeah, I mean, the funny thing here is that um, it was events happening and sometimes these things happen and, and there's good things happen from it. So I actually saw Kiltwalk pitch at Scottish Edge, which we've talked about on the show. And I loved the idea, as you say, great idea. But then the team at Edge did the due diligence and came back and said, Tom, bit of an issue. And I went, oh, that's a shame. And I, I said to you, go and have a wee look at this because... I love the idea. And then that's how it came. And it, and it came just at the right time for us because people think the Hunter Foundation's this huge operation. You know, we have one full-time employee and um, we couldn't cope with all of the requests. Tom, can you help me with this? Can you help? And, and I hate saying no, but we were inundated and we couldn't deal with it. So when the kilt walk came, we come up with the idea of making it the lowest cost platform for every and any Scottish charity to raise money for what they cared about. And we could, we could do that because when MD phones now or writes me an email and says, Tom, can you help me with this? We say, yeah, do the kilt walk. Do the kilt walk. And what the kilt walk has actually become, because of the team that's sort of led by Paul there, but, you know, Big Eddie from Arnold Clark. I mean, now Arnold Clark, we had um, 4,000 people walked Glasgow while he was there. And um, if you registered, he's a chance to win a car. Eddie actually gave us three cars. I don't think there's anything like it in the world. I think it's probably going to be one of the most important things the Hunter Foundation's ever does. Don't. Can I just say on this? Tommy, you're right, it's so important. The template that you've set up for the kilt walk should be a template that people should use across the globe, right? I don't think there is a charity where, as you say, we can guarantee you that 100% of the costs go towards your charities and will give you more. But that transparency that you have should be the template for Oscar to impose this on other people because... Unfortunately, at the moment, there's a lot of great charities out there, but there's a lot of charities where the costs of running the charities is far too great. It's a regular investigation that the media do into major charities. What proportion of the money raised is actually spent on admin or wages? And it's getting that balance right. I think on the business show, people listening, it would be worth listening to Hunter and Hockey, genuinely. Uh, what they give back... Uh, uh, and all the money goes to the charities. You know, on the radio station just a few weeks ago, um, a guy was on walking to Wembley, running to Wembley, sorry. He, while he was listening, went onto the station, uh, and the guy has ended up with 50-odd more. He was hoping to raise £20,000. I think after his uh, debut on the radio show, he raised £42,000. And, and and I doubled that. But to be fair as well, I think Big Andy Smiley, local guy again, does great with charity work. I think Andy actually, I'm sure he'll not mind me saying, but I think Andy gave him another 10 grand on top. I know all charities, some of them may have costs, you may have to have costs, but I think that, I've got to be honest with this, Tom, I don't think actually that Oscar does enough 
right, unfortunately, they might have a small staff. So it, it'd be interesting to see if they checked out in, in charities more and more. I mean, Oscar does a great job, by the way, but I just don't think they've got enough people for the amount of charities that are registered now. But the, the, as I say again, the template for the Kilt Walk and how that is set up is, is phenomenal. I think what was important when we took over was the trust, and I'm very proud that the Hunter Foundation is trusted. The numbers for this year are, are just out, and Kiltworks raised $8.4 million. Amazing. Over 1,400 different Scottish charities benefited from that, you know. And when we were walking around about Glasgow Green last Sunday asking people who they were walking for, it just struck me that when we couldn't walk together, we went virtual. And 2021 has ended up the biggest ever year for the Kilt Walk. And we have been such a lifeline for smaller charities in Scotland. I'm really proud of that. Down to the team, led by Paul. So it's it's fantastic. Can I just say, anyone who's involved with trying to raise any funds for any charity, right, this is not a plug for the Kilt Walk. This is a plug for yous. You cannot raise money in a better way. I couldn't believe it. The people involved with the hospice that I'm heavily involved in, East Kilbride, between them, they've done the Kilt Walk at the weekend and they raised £42,000. Amazing. And to see Tom's video saying yesterday that he's going to double that money. I phoned, I phoned a lady who does the fundraising for hospice and she couldn't believe it. So every charity out there... I'm telling you, there is nothing better to be involved in to get, to use the <laughs> to get the best bang for your buck. And double Willie, your money. You should call it he, double your money at the Kilt Walk. <laughs> Tom said to me last year, Paul, how quickly can we get it out? Because of the pandemic, and that was different challenges. We couldn't actually go out and walk. So Tom said, right, what's in the bank f- for next month's Glasgow Kilt Walk? I said 350000 So over the next couple of weeks, Tom did a video and said, get the money in as quickly as you can. We can't walk at the moment. We'll get it out and we'll add 50%. Tom's, uh, the Hunter Foundation has increased it to 40% and then 50% extra. And then two weeks later, we announced that money had gone up to 750000 And Tom blew us all away by saying, I'm not giving you 50%, it's 100%. 1.5 million went out. And he said to me, Paul, how quickly could that go out? And I said, well, probably, I'm thinking, wait, a week? He went, no, no, faster, let's do it. You, you just get things done. We make the checks, we do it. And it goes because it was really needed at that point and it always is. Uh, and business people listening to the programme, I would encourage them, do this in the future. Try, do the kilt walk as Willie says there. Not for us. We don't, the money is not for the kilt walk. None of it is. It's for your charity, whatever you care about. And there's so many different ones there. The money's been going out this last week. It, it, brilliant stories. In, in my experience, the people in the west of Scotland, they're big givers, right? But what the Kill Walk has also done is set up a wee competition. <laughs> so what I'm telling everybody who's involved in a charity in the west of Scotland, we need to beat Aberdeen, we need to beat Edinburgh, right? So come on, every charity in the west of Scotland, get your kilt on. Or you don't have to get a kilt on. I didn't have a kilt on. Get a bit of tartan on and get, get it signed up for the Kill Walk for next year. How significant was the decision to open it up to all charities, not just children's. Tom? When we took it over, it was done a certain way. And I've always had this curiosity to say, why is it done that way? Why can't we do it this way? And I just said, can we make it every charity, not just children's charity? And people went, aye. And that, that was it. It was, such, it was so simple. 
but nobody had really thought of it. So that opened it to everyone, as Tom said, and it's 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 open to every charity in Scotland. And when we get the praise, we say it's brilliant. But there are many more charities. I, I was watching the news the other night, Thursday night, and they were saying that one of the charities, it's 50% down during the pandemic, Kidney Research UK. And, they, and obviously that creates a big, big problem for them. Huge. Yeah. We shouldn't minimise. We see the number of mental health charities now that depend on funding. Um, is that growing and growing, Paul? Very much so, Willie. Yeah. It says the homeless has been big as well, too big. Um, but the trouble for the homeless is there's not many people are walking for them. They don't have a network of people. And people are often affected by, um, you know, a personal tragedy in their family or a health challenge. And that's totally understandable. People do it for different things. Thanks for the moment now, Paul. We're going to chat more after this short break. This is the Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Insight, advice and guidance into the world of business. Welcome back. We're talking to Paul Cooney, CEO of Kilt Walk. When a business gets involved in doing a Kilt Walk for a charity, it binds everyone together. Royal Bank of Scotland, it had been much criticised over the years, but in the years with Kilt Walk, they've been a phenomenal headline sponsor for us. And they lead from the top. Ross McEwen and Tom would lead out the Kilt Walk at times. Uh, Big Ross, a New Zealander, as you know, ex-rugby player, he's knees, he said they can only take me six miles. And the Royal Bank, there's about a thousand walkers a year. So they come together as well. They're our biggest corporate in terms of getting people to walk. And um, in 2017, Tom and I and the Kilt Walk team met a young woman. She was 17 years old, uh, she was a six-year student, pupil in Edinburgh. She was playing netball and she, uh, th- her knee was very sore. It turned out she had cancer. She then lost both legs from the knee and she was so inspirational and she was raising for Teenage Cancer Trust and for It's Good to Give, which is a respite. It's a bit like Callum's Cabin. It's a wonderful respite um, place for families with young people who are suffering from cancer. And then in 2017, she led out, you'll remember it well, Tom, she led out the Kilt Walk in Edinburgh. It was pouring. It was Edinburgh, pouring. And Queen of the Jungle, Toff was there, Georgia Toffolo, Judy Murray, and there was Joanna. And she said to people, I'm in awe of you walking the Kilt Walk. I'm just doing six miles, just doing six miles on her prosthetic legs. And Joanna and her legacy, Tom made her her first Kilt Walk ambassador. She really... Everyone admired her. And Tom um, and Marion asked her to speak in front of Michelle Obama, which was wonderful through in Edinburgh. But I think people, special people like her, live long in the memory. And her legacy is the money raised for it's good to give. Fantastic. What a story. How big do you think Kilwalk can get? Where do you where do you see it in the future, Tom? Well, I mean, as as Willie said, you know. Kilt Walk offers any and every charity in Scotland this amazing opportunity. Um, this is the lowest cost platform for any charity to raise money for what they care about. And they got a top up. It's not always going to be 100% like this year, but it's normally 50%. You get a chance to win a car. I mean, this, there's nothing like this in the world. Yeah, I think the point you make about companies... This is a fantastic tick in the box for your ESG. Every big company, you know, get all the staff involved, get morale going. I certainly know after watching it this year, been there been a few years, but 
100% for me when, when we get everyone back in the office I'm going to make a big push to try and get everybody involved in it and we get 800 people in the building and I want to know why people wouldn't get involved in it rather than be involved in it There's a wee charity um, in Renfrewshire two years ago so in, in 2019 they were raising money to buy winter coats for children in the Bishopton area not far from Glasgow 2019 and they raised a thousand pounds and that went up to 1500 and then 2000 through the kilt walk they did the kilt walk and that purchased 250 coats Primark did them a deal imagine and then last year that went up they raised um, more four six thousand pounds it bought over a thousand coats but isn't it terrible that we need this you wouldn't believe it that we do and that's where the kilt walk that was just two people who started doing that start of the pandemic a young man in shorts uh, put something in Facebook, he'd lost his job, he'd no money coming in. And we all remember, everyone had to go home uh, and uh, you know, lock the door, not go out for a while. And he had no money, he had nothing. And he put something in Facebook and there was a couple, Tracy and Jerry, who spotted it and said, we need to do something. So they raised some money and they got some food for him. And they called it Paul's Parcels and they did the kilt walk. Uh, by that, it was a virtual kilt walk. Tom, you'll remember this last April. And they have been feeding on the back of the kilt walk 84 families. Unbelievable. As you say, Paul, it's, it's a disgrace in this day and age yeah. that we've got to do that. But obviously these charities, that I mean, they're, they're actually saving people's lives. You know, people would have nothing for some of these people not taking care of them. And I think that, again, getting that message out there about raising money, but also it being doubled and knowing that hardly any of that money or any at all was going towards cost within a charity is absolutely amazing. So amazing. many inspirational stories, but when you started out getting involved, did you see it being of the scale it is today? No, I didn't think it would get to this. Tom had said to us, uh, to the team, um, let's raise £10 million in, in five years. And, and that was wonderful. And in the five years, we raised £20,560,000. And... The five Amazing. years, which is last year. I mean, it's only five years and five months since we we strode out from Hamden Park. It was April the 24th, 2016. I'll never forget it. And uh, Tom addressed the crowd and they walked the full 26 miles. No, I didn't. And, and since then, 20... <laughs> well, no, you didn't, but I, nor did I. £29 million pounds for 2,700 charities. But... We're not about the numbers, we're just about helping people. It's the stories that we do love. It's uh, the, the team are so thrilled. When they hear yesterday that it's being doubled, it's just phenomenal. The place is buzzing. You'd see it in social media. You would see it in the Herald, who've been brilliant. The media uh, have been as well. And Glasgow especially, people are so generous. I think we all know that in all our experience over the years. But I think for the listeners listening this morning um, it was news to me that this was all started by the Tartan Army yeah. and obviously their idea behind it was you know sensational um, but, but it tells you about you know the, the mentality of Scots people towards giving yeah. it's fantastic what a story and Paul it was interesting at the Kilt Walk last week that um, to see people of all ages people kids in prams strollers young people old people it was absolutely amazing I, I hadn't noticed that before maybe the mix has changed over the years but, but everyone is included. It was fantastic, absolutely fantastic. We have walkers who are over 80 and they say, I'll see you next year. And so I look forward to it. And they is that when you, and they, did you mean that? That's when they'll finish. <laughs> <laughs> you, get, you get loads of good fun. Uh, and I'm sure the young man, Tom, that I spoke to last week will not mind me telling the story. 
but a young guy came up to Tom and asked for a picture and Tom said to him yeah no problem he says get a selfie and he said to the young man and, and what are you walking for he says oh Gamblers Anonymous I says I bet you're not <laughs> oh, oh no he took it very well yeah he, he did actually he was he good did. he was having a good laugh yeah. at it I'm sure he won't mind me telling the story Paul obviously the station goes out across the country so yep. do you want to tell us a wee bit about in the other cities yep we, so we go to normally uh, Aberdeen then on uh, the beginning of June and the people of Aberdeen love it it, it it's a bit slower uh, around the country but we got the help of uh, DC Thompson uh, they were great with us they are so the Aberdeen Express is absolutely brilliant backing us then we go to St Andrews to Dundee and then we go to Edinburgh uh, the capital city uh, in September from Holyrood Park all the way around but you can either do 26 miles and we finish at Murrayfield uh, who the SRU have been brilliant with us it brings a lot Doddy Weir leading people out in Glasgow and Doddy walked as you'll remember Tom three years ago along with his wife from Glasgow to Clydebank big Doddy wow was, amazing yeah. what an effort for him yeah so any final shout out on that Tom to encourage people to sign up next year um, no I, I, as I said um, the people of Scotland especially in, in Glasgow in the west you know it's just giving the people of Scotland a wee hand up for what they care about. A hand up, not a hand out. And I'm so proud to be involved. No, oh, it's brilliant what you do, uh, Tom. Now, Paul, we come to the part of the show where we ask 10 quick fire okay. questions. So you're ready. You probably prefer to walk 26 miles than <laughs> endure this, but here we go. It's so unusual being on this side of the microphone. Usually I'm asking the questions. Yes, indeed. Yep. <laughs> How would your family and friends describe you? I think loyal. Um, yeah, loyal, dependable, and uh, it can be fun at times as well. I like a bit of fun. I like to be positive. What's your best and worst traits? Uh, the best trait, I think luckily, I think I've got energy. Um, and I enjoy, I love what I'm doing. If you enjoy what you're doing, enjoy it and you don't have to work. When you were a child, what did you want to be and why? A few things. One, a footballer, but I probably wasn't uh, good enough. And then I used to enjoy at school in Hamilton, we'd sit and talk about football. So we would talk about what about the Celtic game at the weekend? What about range? And I remember beginning to just chat with people. And little did I know that a couple of years later, Jimmy Greaves, who just passed away just a, you know, a few weeks ago, greatest ever England striker, was in my house, Shelley driving Bodwell, having a cup of tea along with Saint, to idols at lunchtime with Saint and Greavesy. But that's a story for another day. Your favourite restaurant in Scotland and maybe meal of choice? It's not open at the moment, but, and I'll come to it in a second or two, but it, hopefully it will be soon. It would be Regano over the years, Wade. Mm. So it was, uh, it, it was a real treat to go to Regano and I look forward to going back to it. The buttery is also uh, special. Yes, and Cafe Gandolfi for breakfast. I like going into town early and grab a slice of toast or porridge or something. So it would be Cafe Gandolfi in the Merchant City. All great places. What's the last film or series you've watched and what's your all-time favourite? I do love the Bond stuff that's on the go at the moment. It's so obvious. I haven't seen it yet. I know it's, you have, I heard you say. It's yeah. brilliant, although two hours, 40 minutes, that's a challenge for men of a certain age, I'll tell you, because you can't pause it. <laughs> so enjoy the football stuff that's on, some of the great documentaries, the insight on Amazon, you know, Guardiola, that was special, um, and also Mourinho, uh, and Sir Alec Ferguson. And phenomenal. And I got the hairdryer treatment from him once with Fergie. Have we got time for it? I was just... Yeah, yeah. go on, yeah, tell us. So, 
Aberdeen were playing Celtic and on the Friday the club uh, secretary the general manager said Paul you can't do the game tomorrow I was like well we've got a contract what's the problem so eventually he said it's the manager I said well, can I speak to the manager I, I doubt he'll speak to you so I get him on the phone Fergie takes my call Friday lunchtime Alex we want to do the game tomorrow so he's like nah you're not doing it I said right with all the greatest respect you're a fantastic manager why are you worried about a radio station doing the Aberdeen Celtic game tomorrow so he was absolutely fine I said can I come up and take you for lunch he's like I don't go for lunch but come on up next week and I came up the following week I had a bowl of soup with him it was fascinating I had an hour with Sir Alec Ferguson who wanted to be in Glasgow I think in many ways I think he'd love to have been manager at Rangers the team he'd played with but he was telling he said I wouldn't let you do this phone in in Aberdeen I'm thinking I think you would because we're always fair we don't have an agenda but to learn from Alec Ferguson you'll get the hairdryer treatment but to turn it around was a, a special a special occasion what music are you listening to and who's your favourite band? That'll be a tough one for you, I would have thought. Yeah, I was really lucky over the years. A lifetime of um, you know people coming in and out. Um, so at the moment, Heights. I absolutely oh, love Heights. I saw them a few... <laughs> I saw them a few weeks ago in Glasgow headlining at King Tut's. They are amazing. Uh, and I heard them on, the, on Go Radio with Artie Joshi. And it's brilliant to hear local bands with real talent. They are two to look out for. H-Y-Y-T-S. Um, I love their material. It comes up on Spotify. Uh, you can get it everywhere. Um, and over the years, I, I probably, I, I like, you know, the club scene was absolutely huge. And I think, you know, dance music, uh, well, it's before dance, but... Lionel Richie, you know, dancing in the ceiling. We were dancing in the tables at Cash for Kids. You were all there. You were too young, Donald. You were in Aberdeen probably at the time. But, you know, dancing in the tables to Lionel Richie all night long in the Central Hotel is something I'll never forget. That's something I can't remember, but anyway, that's <laughs> If you were in power and could change one thing, what would it be? Let's get on with it. Let's speak to the best minds in the areas of their speciality. You don't know everything. It must be a tough job, but I think the party politics is getting everybody down. The journalist of the year last week at the awards, a young journalist said that at Westminster and at Holyrood, there are two of the biggest spin machines um, that we've ever seen. And he was encouraging people still to seek truth and get on with the job. I mean, we can disagree with each other, it doesn't mean to say we have to, you know, not come together. Communities, what I love about the Kilt Walk is bringing people together. What I love about radio is bringing communities together. And that's what it's about, speaking to people, putting people into ghettos and different commissions and all the rest of it. No, this is good for the lawyers, it's good for the civil servants, good for the journalists. What about the people? Most people get on. We don't get on all day, all the time. We can have dialogue. And I think it's a pity that dialogue uh, has, is discouraged in Scotland and in England as well, but especially here just now. So I would say, let's shout about the positives because Hunter and Hockey do challenge everybody, but they give you great opportunity and a terrific atmosphere to fail. I've made many, many mistakes, but as long as you try and learn from it and get on, then we'd be on the right road. And we're talking about on the road, is it? What countries have you most enjoyed travelling to for business or pleasure? I suppose that would be the football over the years. I was really lucky. So I'd be in a, a city for two hours, uh, two days, and then away. Um, the World Cup in Mexico made a big impression on me. The huge wealth and the terrible poverty, cheek by jowl. I was in a hotel. Pelly was in the same hotel. And outside was a family who would be there with the children, with the, the news agent. And they would be there at night time. If we get in at 11, they'd be there at 7 in the morning. But they were lovely people. Mexico, terrible problems, but great opportunity as well. So Mexico, I loved it, in it in Mexico 
Final question for you. What does your perfect day look like? A kilt walk day is hard to beat. To go out and see so many people and meet new people is something special. You know, the first year that I did the kilt walk, I was doing it for the STV Children's Appeal, which is amazing. The following year I was doing it for the Beatson because my daughter had breast cancer. And that's the thing with kilt walk and with uh, the charities. There are so many great hearts and people that want to do well. Uh, and at the kilt walk, you, you come away feeling rejuvenated. And I'm really lucky. I love uh, what I do. That and the broadcast, I, I, I'm really lucky. And the kilt walk, if you haven't done it, watch the social media, watch the Herald, because in a few weeks' time, Tom will be announcing the plans for next year. Thank you, Paul. After the break, is the board you can't afford. Can we jump in before we go? We've got Willie's medal. You met, you were walking so fast the other week that we didn't get the chance to give you the medal. So here is Willie's <laughs> medal. Handing it over to him now from Tom and from oh, everyone brilliant. at Kilt Walk. Thanks thank for you. doing And the money you raised for Kilbride Hospice, phenomenal. Thank you, you very much. Deserve a no, thank you for all the people who walked. <laughs> More than me. <laughs> thank you. Thanks, Paul. The board you couldn't afford. This is the Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Welcome back as we go into the boardroom with Hunter and Hockey and answer your calls with business advice, insight and inspiration. It's the board you can't afford. If you have any questions you want read out in the show or wish to speak directly to Tom and Willie, you can email gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk and you can join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. Politics has uh, been dominating. We talked earlier about the Tory party conference, but can I take you back to a former Prime Minister, Tony Blair. What about his son, Ewan, has amassed a £160 million fortune with his tech startup business designed to steer people away from universities and into apprenticeships. When Tony was Prime Minister, he set a target of getting 50% of people into university. So who's right, Tony or his son, Tom? Well, <laughs> I would say... Um... Tony's son's looking a good bet for me right now. Um, I think there'll be some interesting debates around the family dinner table. But um, I think we've talked about it before, Donald. Um, in education, one size doesn't fit all. And therefore, an obsession with sending everybody to university is wrong. If you look at the UK labour market just now, and, and Willie will, will tell the, the story of a starting um, wage of an engineer versus an account. Um, people should be looking at apprenticeships and you know, bricklayers, joiners, engineers, maybe not to the exclusion of university because one size doesn't fit all. So it's going to be in the mix. But I would say just now, let's talk up vocational education. And therefore, I'm with Tony's son. Yeah, Tom, it's interesting back in the day when Tony Blair said, you know, that 50% of everyone should go to university. Um, it tells you something about the calibre of the cabinet. When one of the cabinet members says, yeah, we want 50% of all the kids to go to university and the other 60% to go into vocational training. <laughs> vocational education, Willie? Oh, all day long. You know, and I, I think everyone should aspire to try to get to university but don't take it as a failure if you don't. There's, you know, the world is your oyster in vocational training, apprenticeships, technical uh, apprenticeships. You know, I think I've told this story before, but, you know, if if we bring a young accountant into our business just now, coming in at 22 years old, you know, he may, may make 22, 24,000 pounds. 
five years time you know when he's 27 28 maybe getting another 5,000 pound 10 years so he's at 32 years old he may be getting 34 34,000 pound a 21 or 22 year old time served central heating engineer electrician bricklayer can be making the money that that guy will be making in 10 years time wow that's a fact maybe more than that now well it brings us in nicely to a question we got from uh uh, somebody who's written in saying about recruitment, they, obviously on the back of us discussing labour shortages. And I asked both of you, what qualities do you look for when recruiting? Tom? Well, I mean, what we always look for, and it's it's not the bits of paper. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not talking down university because obviously now there are universities in Scotland punches above its weight in its universities, um, University of Edinburgh, University of Strathclyde, Glasgow, St Andrews. In fact, St Andrews was rated above Oxford and Cambridge recently. So there is a place for it. But what am I looking for? I'm not looking for the bits of paper. I'm looking at the person. And the one word I'm looking for, do they have the right attitude? Are they going to work hard for us? Are they going to get stuck in? Are they going to say, right, I don't know about that, but I'll go and find out. The attitude is everything. The good news is everybody can change their attitude. That's up to you. You can either wake up in the morning, be grumpy and everything's terrible, or you can say, right, come on, get stuck in. I'm going to do a good job today. Yeah, an important point there on attitude, Willie. I think ambition. You know, I like to finish an interview by saying, how long do you think it would take you to get my job? Right, seriously, to see what the reaction is. But definitely ambition and obviously, you know, attitude will be in there. But I'm, I'm looking for hunger, you know. and we Take it for red. If you get to an interview in front of me, we've looked at all the skills you're supposed to have. We look, I'm looking for the human, you know, attributes after that. And that's generally what I go on. We'll bring 10 people in that will all have a degree in what we're looking for for the specific topic. But for me, I want to see the person, look them in the eye. I interview everyone in my senior management team. Brilliant. Well, just to make it a wee bit more interesting, can you remember, Tom, and then I'll come with Willie, your best, and then you may uh, want to make this anonymous, your worst hire? <laughs> oh, goodness me. I I, I do remember that the, the one that comes to mind was we were growing sports division and we were only in the high street, but I had I visited America and I'd saw these big box out of town superstores and I thought, this is for us. And the only other person who was doing it in the UK at the time was Olympus Sport. And so I got to, I invited the number one and number two at Olympus. So we had one of them for dinner, we had one of them for breakfast and they both totally contradicted each other that they were the best and um, so that was probably my best and my worst but um, we actually sat and listened to the guy that we took on and we changed our plans there and then because Olympus got some things right they got quite a lot wrong which allowed us to go and buy them in a few years time but yeah we had the boss and his number two for dinner and breakfast and I'm not going to tell you which one we took but that was a good hire. So, Willie, your best and worst hire? <laughs> I would say certainly there's probably, there's a hundred people that I've taken on over the years that I would say that all fall into the best category. And that's that's a fact. I wouldn't pick one person. 
But my worst, definitely, I get so bad at picking salespeople that I actually gave up on the sales division. <laughs> I closed <laughs> down the sales division, right? So one of the unique things about this business, and this is true, that we grow this business quite well, 10%, 12% a year, sometimes more, and we don't have any sales and marketing division. So that's a unique thing about City. We don't. Both of you, Tom Willie, you're really big into business books. Anything you're reading just now or you'd recommend, Tom? So, yeah, um, I've got a couple on the go just now. Um, the first one is Rebel Ideas by Matthew Syed. And it's all about how people, business people, scientists, politicians, um, and, he, and he starts the book talking about 9-11 and how America got it wrong um, trying to find the terrorists and prevent 9-11. And it's all about the human mind. And I, I just love Matthew Syed. He, he writes in the Sunday Times and it really gets you to think. And the second book is by a guy called Mo Godat, I think, G-A-W-D-A-T, and it's called Scary Smart. And this is about AI. And there's one line in this book which blew my mind. And he said, right, let me try and explain AI to you. He said, if you're driving a car and you have a crash, then you learn something. If an autonomous car, self-driving car, has a crash, every autonomous car in the world learns something. Wow. Blew my mind. Well, that's a great point. Willie? I'm reading a very interesting book by a gentleman called Owen Eastwood. Right, and he is, I don't think his qualification is a psychologist, but what he's doing now is he is going into large sporting organisations, like at the moment he's advising Gareth Southgate, he's done the South African rugby team, he's done, right, and it's amazing, Tom, that how he portrays that a, your culture and your history is everything in team building. Wow. Right, some of the stories in this book, he has a book out at the moment called belonging and I found it fascinating um, I know it's a, a recent book but I wish it was something where I'd had this wisdom 20 years ago it is absolutely fascinating now some of it's a bit heavy and it's a bit repetitive but the message that you get through this and when you get to the end I can tell you it's a 7 hour 36 minute book and I've done it in 2 days in Audible it was wow. so good it was so good own Eastwood. I'm downloading it now, Willie. I tell you what, a humble guy. And now on to our phone lines, and our caller is Cara Batchelor, who's a director of advanced training up in Dundee, and we were talking earlier about Dundee and the kilt walk. Welcome to the show, Cara. Hi there, thanks for having me on. Tell us a bit about your company, uh, yourself, and then let's have your question for Tom and Willie. Hi there. So yes, I'm I'm Cara Bachelor. I'm a director of quite a number of companies up in Dundee. Um, I've been running businesses since I was 18 years old. Um, the ripe old age of 25 wow. now. Um, and yes, I at the moment I'm director of Advanced Training Solutions and Alexander Community Development. I'm working hard um, to get more people into into employment and boost some of our industries that are really, really struggling at the moment. So um, my question today is, we're obviously at the other side of this last 18 months um, and everything's starting to boom again. House prices are up, construction's increasing, materials are increasing. But that can't surely go on forever. Um, do you think there's going to be another crash coming? 
Oh, great question, Willie. Well, I've been covering this over the last few weeks. I'm probably the best to answer this, Cara. Um, I don't think there's a crash coming. Uh, I think there'll be, um, there's going to be a few bumps along the road here. I think the 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 spike that house prices have had, I think we'll get back to normality maybe in six, nine months. Um, I've been saying it for weeks. Once we, we, we've we got a kind of scientific data after COVID, which we don't have at the moment, everybody's guesstimating, then I think you'll see that, unfortunately, there'll be more people unemployed before COVID arrived 18 months ago. And this will have an effect on everything, right? And it's interesting that, that you mentioned housing and the booming housing. Be, before technology advanced, you know, sh- the stocks and shares in the markets, the, the, the barometer for how the economy was doing was housing, was always the barometer. And at the moment, the, the surge that we've had in the building of houses, normally that would mean that the place was booming. And that's why I don't think there'll be a crash. I think this will continue more than anything because of the need for houses. So I think that there'll be certain sectors that will be affected more than others. But to answer your question, I do not think there'll be a crash. What's your view, Cara? Are you worried there'll be a crash? I think, again, I'm too young to remember the 2008, so I don't have any lessons to learn from that. But I think it's a positive to hear that we're no longer in a position that we're measuring, obviously, based on house prices. I do think they'll have to settle down a little bit because, obviously, employment isn't chased the same, wages aren't rising at the same rate. And that's where... I, I wouldn't be surprised if there is a crash in some industries, but hopefully not in the same way that there was back in 2008. I think, um, certainly from, from my perspective, um, we're in a, such a different position now with between things around skill shortages, with Brexit and that post-COVID world that is so much more difficult to predict than it probably would have been back then. You're saying you're too young to remember 2008. Um, but it certainly was a it was a very difficult I time. I just didn't run a business. <laughs> it was a line I would love to use. <laughs> um, but I believe you've got a further question linked to 2008. So please. Yeah, that that exact reason. Um, I wasn't, as I said, I, I was not, but a director by any means in 2008. And that those lessons that a lot of people learned back in that in that crash things are so different. You've just said it yourself this time round. The crash probably won't happen to the same extent if it does, but there's going to be such different skill shortages this time round. How do you foresee this to come out the other side of this and the the changes that are going to occur? Well, I think you're right. This will look nothing like 2008, Um, but there will be be winners and losers. Uh, And I think there are certain sectors. I also think, Cara, and I'm getting this evidence coming through from, I've got a few places of my own in the hospitality sector, that people's mindset in relation to hospitality is going to change. So that is going to disrupt that market more than anything. Uh, People now, I'm being told, are leaving restaurants much earlier. You know, that people are still going out, restaurants are getting busy, but people now, restaurants are quiet after 9.30, where I remember they used to be booking tables at 9.30. So um, I think that there will be a correction uh, for some of the interest, uh, the industries that have had an uplift because of COVID. I think that will settle down. And I unfortunately, I think there's going to be some sectors that are going to be affected, you know, for a long time to come. I think it's going to be a long time before the aviation industry. I think the hospitality industry 
I think it's going to be a long, long time before they get back to what they would call normal. And I also think, sadly, that while people have been on furlough, they've got used to having a lot of time on their own. And I think people have been thinking long and hard about their jobs, what they were doing. Uh, you know, just give one, one, you know, one trade. Chefs. I think a lot of chefs have loved all the time that they've had off. And do they want to be in a, a kitchen on a Friday night and a Saturday night for whatever they're getting paid? Then they, they now feel that they were undervalued. So I think a lot of people are, are going to have a long, hard think about what they do. I honestly don't think that that things are going to be the same. That's not to say that they're going to be bad, they're going to be better, but they're certainly not going to be the same. No, I think, I think you're absolutely right. And I think... Um, I suppose to put a positive spin on it. Um, thankfully, obviously, my my industry and training. Um, hopefully, we will be one of those winners who can jump on and help those people who are looking to retrain. Because I do think people have had had time to review and reflect on their choices, and no longer tied up in that rat race the same way. Well, Tom, you've been talking a lot about it, and Willie. Yeah. Well, Cara, I can just say it, yeah, and I'm not just saying this for effect, you are one of the industries that will definitely um, benefit from this. Training and retraining is going to be a huge part of recovery. And uh, please come on in the future and let us know that we were right and hopefully you're, you're booming. Thank you for your call, Cara. Thank you very much and I'll hold you to it. I'll be back. Brilliant. <laughs> we look forward to it. Thank you. Great stuff. Bye-bye. Don't forget, if you want to be part of the board you can't afford... You can put your questions to Tom and Willie by emailing gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. The Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you get your podcasts. podcasts.